0: Now, today on the show, we have near-death experiencer Leslie Lupo. And Leslie's NDE was pretty traumatic. She died in a tragic horse-riding accident, which was pretty brutal to say the least. But what she saw on the other side, I think is going to leave you speechless. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show Leslie Lupo. How are you doing, Leslie?
1: I'm great.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show, my dear, and sharing your remarkable story with my audience. Uh, my very first question is, before we get into your near-death experience, what was your life like prior to, to having that near-death experience?
1: Hmm. Well, um, my I was working and living on a dude ranch. Personally, I was like borderline atheist. I had no interest in spirituality. I had no interest in intuition, I had no interest in that at all. I basically was very turned off to it. I mean, I worked hard, um, I I was a good person, but it was more like being good for my integrity rather than being good because of some religion, you know? And I was kind of anti-religion because I just felt they were, you know, hogwash. So, but i was I was living and working in a dude ranch, which is seven days a week, and I loved horses, and I was the owner's wife. So I was very um busy doing all the different aspects of it. And I had two small children. And so, in a lot of ways, I was very busy, almost like too busy to recognize that there was this kind of inner drum going on that was, making, you know, there was a big section of my life that was very unhappy that I kept putting to the side, feeling I'll get to it someday. Not today, not today, you know, like that. So, So, but I was very busy.
0: (laughs) So yeah, you basically were caught up in the drama of life, essentially. Yes, very much so. And, and you're like, there's something else about me that's just not feeling right, but I can't get to that right now. I'm too busy doing this stuff.
1: Right, right. And keep it. It's almost like I was treading water and just keeping my nose above the water. And I had to work really hard to do that. Like my time with when I was with my children was phenomenal. I mean, it was nice being the wife of the owner because then I could see my kids all during the day. I had a nanny that would bring them down for meals and or I could go up to the house and hang out with them. So, and I loved being a mom. That was the one part of my life that gave me an intense amount of joy was uh, hanging out with my babies and, and uh, just being a mom and watching their growth and, you know, how they evolve and change, you know, it's wonderful.
0: Now, did you, so you weren't raised with religion at all, or did you have? Yes, I was. Okay. But you just kind of said, this doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yes, very much. So I was raised Roman Catholic. And by the time I was eight or nine, <laughs> I was like, I declared myself an atheist, I think, when I was nine, to because the nuns, I just, I would battle them, because what they were saying was, you're only going to heaven if you're a baptized Roman Catholic. And I was like, that doesn't work for me. I mean, even at that age, I was like, no. <laughs> so...
0: yeah Yeah. that was one part of of of, i was raised as well uh roman catholic and and it was just kind of like so you mean the other three billion or four billion people in the world are just like sorry potluck you're not the chosen
1: like right you're going to hell that's what terrified me i said where are they going and she said hell and everybody in the class went oh because they don't tell you that they just say they're not going to heaven well i raised my hand where do they go hell what about the people that died before Jesus was born? They're all in hell. I mean, I just couldn't wrap my head around it.
0: There's there's a few holes in the story. Let's just yes. put it that way. In the plot, yeah. if you will. And there that seems was
1: to, nine. It was a long time ago, too. I'm not sure how they feel now, but that was pretty, it just turned me off. And I kind of said, no, then there is no God.
0: So you kind of threw the ba- the baby out with the bathwater. With-
1: yes, I did
0: everything. So you're like, there is no God. I, if this is God, I don't even want to talk about it.
1: Right. That's exactly what I said. If there's no God, cause I, I don't believe this would happen. And that was it. I figured, no. And I went into science, even in grade school and high school, I be- went into science because I liked the certainty of it.
0: Right. Because it's predictable and it was solid mm-hmm. and you know, quote unquote, rock solid. Uh, Right, right. (laughs) Because as one thing I've noticed in in human history, every moment in human history, they think they have it all figured out.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go, and that's, I like the way they're doing it now. And one of the things I would always work with my client and say, it seems to be, or when you meet someone new, they seem to be, as far as I know right now, knowing that you may change your mind, you're giving yourself permission to think for yourself rather than, you know, in fact, I raised my children saying question all authority, ask questions if you have them, including me, if we are, if I say no, we'll sit down and talk about it, you know, and, and that was wonderful. And now it's fun to see them doing that with their children, you know,
0: yes, it, it is. Uh, but when they're super young, it gets taxing.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. Yes.
0: Yes. It's going to be I always tell my wife, these skills are going to be excellent when they're teenagers and adults. But right now it's driving me up a wall.
1: (laughs) Right. And I'll tell you, you have to be careful what you say to them. I told my daughter she was mad at herself and self loathing is something we all have to overcome. Mm -hmm. Really, it's it's inherent in humanity. Because children hate themselves when they make mistakes, and I was trying to appease her. And this is actually logically true. You, I said, you have to make like this. You have to. It's going to take you fifty thousand mistakes before you really begin to get it. So then I was miffed at her about something, and I said, you know, I was cross with her. She was, Mom, I haven't made my fifty thousand mistakes yet. And I'm like, okay, shut my mouth, you know.
0: And scene, and (laughs) scene.
1: Exactly, you're like, you're right, you're right, we're
0: done. So, right. so you definitely, you know, kind of rejected religion, rejected God and everything, essentially, and went right into the sciences. Tell me what happened on the day that you had your near-death experience.
1: Well, um, I... I went down, horses are very unpredictable. And we had a cowboy who had come to work and he was um, still intoxicated from the night before. So I sent him home because you don't want an accident. So I jumped into the wrangling department. I was helping out. And at the end of the day, we were unsaddling. Well, I was bringing all the horses in to be unsaddled. And, there was one horse we had called Houdini that could get out of any knot or any corral. We had to keep him separate. and he un, he undid the latch and he ran down to the hay barn with his store with his saddle on. And so I was like, oh no, because if they roll, they can break their back because of the saddle.'ll a lot of horses will go out there and start rolling. And another horse had gotten down. So I grabbed a couple halters. I told the guys I'll go get them. And I started going down. And um, I saw that they were standing right next to each other. And I thought, oh, that's terrific. I'll just go in between. I'll get them both at one shot because they're like, you know, they're like glued into each other eating and they're ignoring me. And I'm trying to poke my way through. And so finally, I was at a point where I turned around and I grabbed the backs of the saddles and I was trying to push my way through between them. And all of a sudden I left my body. I, and if it was, if you had said to me right then, what is this? I would have said, it's my mind, you know, is leaving because, and I, it was as if I went to back 15 feet or so.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: And I was watching what happened and I was like really shocked. I was so shocked. I couldn't even think, you know, it was just watching. And then all of a sudden, one of the horses screamed and started running. And I was had been turned around and I watched what happened. And it spun me around and my arm went into the saddle, you know, where the stirrup is up to my armpit and I was struggling to keep my balance as these horses were running. And the one horse that I was in the saddle was upset because it's like, if there's a mountain lion behind me, you're holding me back here lady, and is kicking at me and hitting me, um, trying to get me off. And then finally like scraped me off by running me into the hay barn, which is concrete and it crushed my skull and i watched myself drop you know i mean i was still stuck in the stirrup for another step or two and then it was really interesting because as i watched it it wasn't that difficult to watch it was almost like watching you take off a jacket and throw it on the bed you're done with it if there was a a certainty that this is No big deal. You're just choosing to let go of your body in that way. And I remember thinking, I wonder if everyone leaves their body. Because the one thing I knew was that I was dead. I knew it was not a dream. I knew it was not going to be, I was unconscious. I knew that I was dead. It was very, it was a certainty, like I'm talking to you. And the other thing, I started laughing because... I didn't feel anything of the distress. I mean, my body fought and screamed in pain and and terror. If somebody had witnessed that, they would have said, oh my God, she suffered horribly. And yet I didn't. I didn't suffer at all because I didn't kind of know what was, I mean, I was watching it and I felt this peacefulness and this kind of like, I don't know if you would call it wisdom to know that I was okay, the body wasn't and I'm not the body at that moment. And then I started kind of like, I felt lighter, it's almost like my cells separated and this beautiful little breeze was going through. And I felt very light. And I felt so much joy in all my senses. It's almost like I felt twice as alive as I did when I was in a body because all my senses were um, completely awakened. Like I'm looking at you. And if you notice, as you get on your peripheral vision a little further, it gets blurry. Well, it wasn't blurry. It was all sharp. And I could hear so many sounds that would have been faint were I could hear them. I knew what they were, the birds or the lizards crawling around. You could hear them scrabbling along and the colors, the smells, and everything was beautiful. It wasn't like I was being overloaded with information. It was just like really looking at everything in a way I had never even seen it. As much as I loved the ranch and I loved the horses and I loved nature, it was even more beautiful that way. And, um and and I just had to kind of try to adjust to that, because I felt like really electric, and everything was in my brain or my consciousness was moving very quickly. But I was right in step with it.
0: Interesting. So, but you were still, or so the body is on the ground at this point. Yeah. Um, you're disconnected. You have not felt anything that's been going on. So you actually kind of like did a preemptive pull out if you will right
1: before right before
0: anything happened right so you're watching all this you're having all this feeling this is all still on earth you're still yes. in the ranch looking yes. around you could see behind you as
1: well i i would say no i didn't see 360 but my my peripheral vision was 180. much wider yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was 180. it was more than 180 it was okay. almost like you know, 240,
0: maybe 240. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Whatever. Like something like here, but you couldn't see behind. I'm asking this question because a lot of near death experiencers say they can see behind themselves and stuff, but you're still right. on the earthly plane. Right. So what happens next?
1: Well, I saw down at the very bottom of the field at the horse, the pen, horse pen, the last two rides coming in. They were the fast rides. And I felt such nostalgia because I used to bring the rides in, you lift up the, you bring them in but then everyone saw me and they raced over. And it's hard to explain how you move because it's not like linear walking like this. It's just, I look someplace and I'm there. So they were all clustered around the body. And then I w- I was there right next to them and they were turning me over. And this one man started doing CPR on me and, um, another man jumped off his horse and they were helping them and the cowboys were taking the horses away but the people had stayed because the guests all knew who I was you know they the one thing about this ranch is people like 70% of the people that go go back so it's like a big family every week so they all knew me and um, they tried to resuscitate me and and I'm like no no I'm fine don't do it don't do it because I didn't want I liked where I was (laughs) and then, but everything, now I've I've heard some people talk about a tunnel of light where they're going up and I felt like I was above the ground but it's almost as if everything started changing around me like Tucson started fading out and the upstairs faded in. And um, so, And and I felt like things were moving and there were these three beings that looked like bright light that were kind of going around me, almost like to keep me from whatever, I don't even know, getting bumped or something. And then finally, this other world, which is like a beautiful forest uh, with vines and a stream in it and all that just kind of started coming into view. And that's when I w- had completed my transition upstairs, is what I called it. And um, I, I was groggy. It was as alert as I was on Earth, at this vibration. I guess I was very groggy when I first got there.
0: And okay, so you're groggy. What's going? I have to please continue. What happened?
1: Okay. <clears throat> um, I think the first thing that really hit me was that I could feel no fear. I had, it's as if all that fight or flight or freeze reflex that we have in our DNA, in our very core animal brain was gone. And everything was so beautiful. All the things like the trees and the flowers and the vines and the ferns, everything was it had like um an iridescence on it so um if you look at a ribbon that's white or then you look at a ribbon that's white with iridescence it's like this is earth this is heaven and just looking at everything it was like i was just marveling i was just walking around the 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 amount of love that you're getting from everything you're seeing was it's indescribable and I've talked to a few people who have had near-death experience I've gone to some of the conferences and everyone says the same thing it is so hard to to describe and that's what I tried to do in the book it took me a long time to write it because every time I'd go back and reread it I'd think of another sense whether it was sound or smell or you know, um, feeling to add to it. So I was trying to get people to realize that this is like this much of what you feel up there. And um, just walking around, touching things. And the interesting thing is, if you ever go out like at daybreak or sunset and you look at a tree and the sun's behind it and all the leaves are lit, Now, you have to picture the whole tree is like that, and the bark is lit, and everything is almost like lit from within. There wasn't like shadows, like we have, like I live in a little forest, and I'm looking out the window, and I see a lot of shadows. There weren't any shadows, but everything was kind of glowing in itself.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. now back to the show
1: and um then i noticed a table and again there were some people standing around it so i went over there and they were all like welcome back you know and and it's as if i knew them and then i noticed the woman that was sitting to my left was a woman that when i was really young i would see some of these light beings around And I thought everyone could see them, but they couldn't. So I got teased about it until I realized, okay, they can't see them. I was like five, six, four, five, six, seven. And, um, you know, they would just appear sometimes. It's almost like I heard these chimes and then, or you'd feel like a sense of everything kind of lightening up like cooler air and and a little breeze when there was you're in the house and then I would see one of these beings and they would never talk to me um just once we talked but they would the love that I felt and I was a gifted student so to keep me happy in school when they were teaching things like reading and writing and and all that because I could do that when I was in kindergarten then they put me in the library And I would read encyclopedias, which I thought was really cool. So I was trying to figure out who these people were. And I figured they weren't devils because I was being raised Catholic. So they Um. must be angels, you know. And so because they I always felt so happy and uh, loved. I just felt so much love coming off of them. And um, then I noticed there were a couple of of these light beings that I had seen when I was on earth. But the only two people that talked to me on this table, there was 11 people. We sat down and we started talking and I was feeling very groggy, you know, And, and at times when it was interesting because if I'd ask a question, like Mina was on my left and Raul was on my right. And Mina would start to answer or I'd get one word, but the whole thing like was an immediate download. So like in my book, there's times when we have conversations that go on for pages, but the whole conversation was like immediately downloaded and comprehended uh, immediately. So then they told me I had a choice um, that I could choose to stay up there or I could go back to earth. Now, if I had made that decision right then, I would not have come back. It was so nice. And so Rahu said, let's, we went to a place. It was a a place that I used to like to go to. There's a, a big cave up behind a waterfall and I used to go and me- meditate in there. And um, on the way there is when I saw this amazing, um light I don't even know how to describe it it was just this ball of consciousness which I came to realize was like the source or the the ultimate um consciousness and it was aware of me with all my little quirks and foibles it was aware of me and adored me And if you remember from childhood, we are taught to adore God. And if we're really lucky, God will like us or pat Mm -hmm. us on the head, you know? Um, And this was like, I could feel this intense love from me. And then I could also feel this adoration back coming towards me, like this complete and head to toes um, love. And then I noticed something else. When I was looking up at the sky, it was a different type of sky. It was almost like patchwork instead of one solid color. And I noticed it was like I was looking through the floor of another realm. And Rahu explained that to me. He said, there's many realms. There's you a know, multitude of realms. And you can go up and you can turn around and you can come down and you can go into the divine. Well, I called it the divine. He's, like the he can go all the way up to the top and come back again. So, and things, this is a problem because some of the times I asked a question upstairs and they answered me, it made perfect sense. And then when I came back to earth, I'm like, what did they mean by that? You know, it's like my brain is back in gear in the human body. I'm like, hmm, I should have taken notes or something, you know? <laughs> So it, seems, um, it
0: it seems like you were talking to a council of elders, it, it sounds like.
1: Well, that was actually, yes, part of my group. Uh, what I was told was that there was a group of us um that had, and part of them came down. Um and that's when I went into that um hall of records and I was talking to this very tall being. And it was interesting because when I would look at someone, it's like I would know their name. And when I met her, her name was like a discordant series of sounds and I couldn't get it. And she said, on earth, I'm called Saraswati. And she was the goddess of knowledge in Hinduism. Well, I didn't know who she was um, and uh, at the time at all. And so um, we talked a lot about why I chose to come down. And this is another thing. I said, why did I come down now? And she drew a picture and she drew a little dot and then a very deep V with a dot and then a dot at the end. And of course it made perfect sense. She said, it looked like to me, I thought maybe there's a crack in the wall. And it wasn't until decades later when someone did my astrology chart for that day and jupiter and venus were here and pluto was at the bottom of that v and i had like 26 minutes he said to come in and go back without any damage and um that was just wild you know (laughs) because that was like decades later and then then the v made sense to me i just kept thinking it was like a crack in the wall i slipped through i didn't understand it but um now the hall, then by they, the way,
0: the, the hall of records, is that kind of the Akashic Records? Would you say? I think so?
1: I mean, that's I'm assuming so, you know. Okay. She didn't call it the Akashic Records, but um it was a, a record. I mean, it was a huge hall, had all these little um drawers that had either scrolls in them or books in them. And she said I used to hang out up there and I would read because it's constantly being added to. Because as we grow, you know, it almost seemed to me, the impression I got was that as human consciousness grows, the divine grows and the angels grow and all the other light beings also elevate. So it's a collective energy that's expansion, you know? And and um, one of the biggest lessons I think that um, I heard was, the fact that it's not going to be like one person being able to change the course of history anymore. There's too many people, but the more that we link arms and work together, which is so nice when you see people of different religions, um, putting down the swords and the guns and saying, we all love God in our different ways and the respect that goes in, you know, to people that realize these are things that are not worth dying over, and the the fact that people are becoming more global and working for global goals, and you know, healing the earth, and you know, um, the weather, and the, that they're beginning to say that there's more important things than one person hoarding it all, and that. It, it has to be shared. And it that's that kind of um, that cooperative businesses, you know, it used to be very competitive. And the last decade, some of the cooperative businesses are the ones that are making the most amount of money. And you see with the millennials and everything where they will go and buy things from a company that says, I'm giving a percentage of the profits away. And here it is. And check it out on my webpage. It's all up they're people in the manufacturing are becoming more transparent which is really good so there's a whole bunch of movements like that and that was one of the things that they mentioned to me that one of the things that I was had come down for was to my group was to stop the spread of this of uh, generational prejudices so you take someone who is not going to be hating on someone just because they're not Catholic and put them in a Catholic religion. And the person says, I can't do that rather than I will do that and get brainwashed into thinking that, well, we're all going to heaven. Oh, you poor guys. Oh, well, you know, and that's where you see people challenging, like the guy from the tobacco company that challenged it. And you see that over and over again, people shifting things um
2: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show
1: you know and making sure that they are in a place where they're being more inclusive and i think one of the biggest things you see on the internet is where you see humans will jump into a river to save a deer that, you know, a baby deer. And, you know, we're the only animal on the planet that will risk our life to save another animal. And that's not our species, not our pet. It's got no relation to us, but we see that. And that's the best part of humanity. And personally, I think, except for White Sox fans, no, I'm kidding. Personally, (laughs) I think... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Personally, I do think that most of humanity are very decent. And I feel there's a lot of misinformation. And again, it's time to question, ask questions, not burn things down, just ask questions. Do the research when you're getting information. Where is this information coming from? Try to find like the truth out. Because that's what they were saying is going to change it is when we begin to work as one instead of all these different countries and these different cities and different colors and different religions. It's like, no, you're all one, you know, and that's something that you see more and more apparent, you know. So
0: when you're all right, so we're still up. We're still upstairs. Uh, yes. You're at the Hall of Records. So you basically came in the world changed around you there's three beings you went to a council of elders you had conversations were there any other conversations there that yes
1: in the cave i walked in the cave and jesus was there
0: well okay what we... cave what cave are we talking
1: about well when we left the table raul and i went to a cave behind a waterfall he said you used to like to go and and just meditate be still there yeah and so we went there and when i walked in it was beautiful it was like a white the marble and it was actually carved out like a circle, you know, like a big um, round circle. It was beautifully done. And I walked in and there's Jesus. And I'm just like, well, if I had been downstairs, I would have gone, what are you doing here? Go away, you know, because I was like, no. But just, you know, he had all this light and he told me to rest. And he started putting this, um, he took, it it was sandalwood and rose oil smelling. But he started putting it on all my chakras, and he said, "You've done an immense amount of work. It's time for you to rest. We appreciate what you've done, and just relax here." And we talked a little bit again about the decision I had to made um make, and he said, "If you stay, everything will be fine. If you go back, everything will be fine. So don't worry about that. You got to do what you want to do, kind of basically, in a nutshell." And then I, it, it's almost like I. I closed my eyes, or i i I must have taken it's almost like the equivalent of taking a nap. And when I opened, he was gone. And you know, again, you had all that love coming off of him, every being you met, it was just, but some of them were a little taller than others. And his aura was so bright, you couldn't see his feet or his bottom of his legs because he was kind of blurry. And then uh, when I came out, that's when I went up to the Hall of Records, talked to Saraswati. And then when I came out of the Hall of Records, there was Mina standing there, the lady with the blue dress that I'd seen as a child. I used to call her the blue lady. And then we went into a smaller room, and there was only six of us at the table. And Rao and Mina were there, and then a couple other people, and then me we started talking that's when we got into heavy duty questions like what happened you know what do you want to do and after that experience with Jesus with the little anointing and the nap I felt didn't feel groggy anymore I felt complete I felt energized and when we so when we were talking I asked a lot of questions like, um, what happens if I stay? What happens if I go? Um, if I stay, what did I do before? And it was like my soul group was responsible for planting these, um, what I came to call blindfolded bodhisattvas. And they're, you know, let's talk about the Dalai Lama. He came down, he's a bodhisattva. He. He was born into a very spiritual family. The monks knew the date and the coordinates. They went to the village. They found him. They brought him and his family back to the monastery. So he had very special training, you know, and um, around the mid-1800s, global consciousness had shifted because when you think about people who may have been like Teresa of Avila or some of the saints and holy people in all the cultures, um, they were born into cultures and families that recognized the gift of that child and they got the proper training so that they'd learn how to focus and learn how to be in the spiritual place because this is all about This is all about being in the physical and you forget the spiritual. So, um, but where do they go? They go into churches and monasteries and mosques and temples and people that are called go. But what about the people that aren't called and are, you know, hung over from the night before or doing, you know, really being really nasty to each other? So around the mid 1800s another group of bodhisattvas volunteered for another level to bring up and that was to be born into very young families not older souls but younger souls and being having being experiencing the teachings and having the wherewithal to say no i can't do that i can't follow you in that And it started in the 1850s, and what they showed me was um, right before and during World War II, a huge amount of these very, very old souls came down because with World War I and World War II, there were so many people that were killed in these wars of just pure hatred, humans killing humans, that... um, They kind of loaded the deck. So in the 40s and 50s, you have a lot of very old souls coming in, which was um, going on with that's when you got the hippies coming in, because in the 60s and 70s was a huge shift. And these were people that were being born in the 40s and 50s and 60s that would kind of go in a different direction and say, no, we can't do it just because you say we should do it. And we had a lot of social upheaval. We had a lot of marches. We had a lot of um, people dying in Vietnam. We had a lot of crazy things going on. And um, that was what fueled that. And so what they showed me was these were bodhisattvas, but they were blindfolded because it's not like they remembered who they were. Mm Apparently, when the Dalai Lama saw the monks, he was five or six. He was playing in the yard. He saw the monks. He ran into the family altar, grabbed some beads, said "Bye, mom," and ran out. And she's running after him, like "Where are you going?" And these monks, they met, they brought them in, and they were convinced that this. In fact, they touched foreheads when they met, and he's a baby, so he knew who he was. The blindfolded bodhisattvas don't know who they are. They're they don't know at all now i started calling them houdini kids because i was watching a documentary on magicians and here's houdini and they start to blindfold him he's standing on a platform and my guides are going ding 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 watch this watch this you know because blindfolded bodhisattvas is a mouthful and they blindfolded him they put him in a sack well they tied mm-hmm. him up then they put him in the sack threw him in the river and it went that's exactly what these blindfolded bodhisattvas experience because they have to find within themselves the spiritual path without any teachers. And some of them suffered so much that they they just said, I can't live like this. There's got to be something else. So I came to start calling them Houdini kids.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show
1: and I've got a lot of information about these Houdini kids on my webpage because many of them have felt like um, I'm a changeling I started for many years I did these workshops for people that you know Houdini kids without really naming it it was actually learning about self-love and forgiveness, self-forgiveness, and, you know, really being at peace with who I am with all my dings and dents in me. And um, it was something that when I would have individual sessions and I'd say, oh my gosh, you're a Houdini kid. And I tell them what it was, this one woman put her head on the desk and she started crying. She said, oh my God, that makes so much sense because they've come down, they felt isolated, they have felt Um, they were spurned by their community or culture or family or or a combination and they they were like okay you know and all of a sudden they realized wait a minute if you knew and you volunteered you're a very old soul and you just you have all that light within and then people will bump into other Houdini kids and they'll go wow we've all been kind of the isolated ones or the changelings or the the ones. I had one man tell me he used to sit in his window because at one point on the news when he was like 10 or 11, there was a big deal because two babies had been switched at birth accidentally and they were now six or seven years old and they realized and they found the parents and said, you guys have the wrong child and it was the trauma of, wait, wait, that's my son. you know, No, it's really not. And so he was listening to that. He was like 10 or 11. He said, oh, that happened to me. I'm switched to birth because I don't relate to any of these people. And so um, it was a really nice thing to understand that this group had come down and my group, my soul group upstairs was the one that placed these bodhisattvas, the blindfolded bodhisattvas. And what we would do is It was almost like looking at a big map and where these old souls were, were these little lit. They were about as big as a piece of rice. And what you had to do is if you had a soul here and a soul here, then you placed it in between, far away from these centers of light. And the more you do it, then the shorter the area becomes. So now there's a lot of these Houdini kids on the planet. And they're the ones that just kind of say, even these kids that are 15 and 14 years old that are stopping the world, you know, and saying, no, I mean, that's magnificent.
0: So all of this is happening in this room. So you're basically like in this small room, they're explaining all of these things to you, right? Yes. It's an exchange of information and you're able to retain this information, which is rare because most of the times it's forgotten when you come back. Like you get glimpses, but you don't have such detailed, like really real information.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. They asked me at one point, do you want to remember this? Yes or no. And I, we talked about it and I chose to. Okay. And they said, okay, but you have to know how isolating it's going to be. Because once I said I would go back, it's like they flipped and they were trying to talk me out of it in a way. And they because were they, saying, they knew. They knew. "Okay, it's going to be very isolating." And the one thing that I think a lot of people who have had NDS don't talk about is the fragility that we feel. It's like a, it's like sometimes I feel like I'm just a house of cards, because certain things will um, kind of. It's like you're watching something, and you feel so much overwhelming pain because you're watching the news and you feel the helplessness that here's people doing extraordinary things that are short-sighted and and detrimental and you can't just walk up and go bibbity bobbity boo and get them to understand that what they're doing is so wrong. And it was, I think, that very helplessness that made me feel so bad before the accident that I just had come to a place of feeling very helpless. And that's why, because um, I, I, when I was talking with Sarah Swati, I said, why did I come? And she said, well, first of all, you have this. Secondly, you had lost hope. And so you came back and now you can come or go. And um, I was supposed to leave when I was 21. I had come down with one of my group and we were going to meet up as a couple and die in a car accident. And literally days before the car accident, I chose to go back to Chicago. We were in Albuquerque. And then he was killed in the car accident. And I was in Chicago. And he kept trying to talk me into staying with him. And I said, no, no, I've got to go back, gotta earn my own money. So pay for my own college. And he says, he had money, he says, I'll pay for it. I said, no, gotta do it myself, you know. And that was uh, then I went back and Four days later, he's dead, and I'm in Chicago. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? Because so I would these, have been in the car with him.
2: That's
0: a, And you heard this in the other side. They told you this.
1: Well, they told me, yes. They, oh, they didn't tell me about the car accident. They just said you had gone down with someone, and he came back, and you chose to stay. That's all they said. It was when I came back down here, and I began to reflect, that I realized, well, you know, it was something that came back to me was the sense that I I bailed. I decided not to, to go. In fact, I had this amazing meditation vision that showed how you disconnect. Like when you're getting ready to die, people will kind of start drifting away from earth's pole and it's got got these little threads on you that are breaking. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing that and i kept looking at the earth and finally i let go of his hand and i went back to earth and he was kept going so um that's right. why and they, everyone has always told me that whenever i've worked with anyone who's you know gifted in intuition they always go god you love the earth you know i said yeah i guess i do cuz i come back a lot
0: so then all right so was there any other you know remarkable information that they told you in that meeting
1: Let's see. Well, um, it's all such a blur, but um, it was basically um, working towards hope. They said you came down the first part of your life, you were bringing down forgiveness because you were very forgiving. Anyone that hurt me, I'd always forgive them. I never held a grudge. And I'm Sicilian, you're supposed to handle grudges, you know, (laughs) but I, I couldn't do it. And as very forgiving and um, very protective of the people I loved and, but very forgiving, you know, and people make mistakes. We all do. We all do. So she said, this part is you're going to be installing hope and showing people the light within themselves. So I had devised a few exercises for people to begin to, not be so attached to the roles they play. Learning what the motivation is for, um, like I, I had had a dog attack me when he stepped in a leg trap. You know, he's my dog, they adore you. But he stepped in a leg trap and I was moving very slowly, but he wound up attacking me because I put my hand near, there was a button to push and it would have opened it. But he didn't know that. And we were hiking up in the mountains in New Mexico. And so I um jumped back. I didn't, he ripped my jacket, he attacked me so viciously big duck. And I didn't know what to do. Then a hiker heard us and he came and he did what I should have done, took off his jacket, covered Orion's head, pushed the button, jumped back in front of me, holding up the jacket. Orion was fine then. He was limping, not a mortal wound. But the one thing is I never got angry with him because he bit me. Because, you know, who would? Of course. But that turned into a life lesson. So if someone comes up and says, Leslie, you're ugly, fat, and stupid, I would look at them and go, wow, you're really hurting, rather than take it personally. So at a young age, I learned through these experiences. And that's one of the things that... Um, Saraswati told me was, you learn, you take an experience and make it a life lesson, which makes it easy to teach. So if someone comes up and is in your face, you can look at them and say, wow, there's their bear trap. So that's an easy thing for people to incorporate right away. And then learning how not to get caught up in the roles that we play, because you have this immortal soul.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show
1: and so one of the things is when I do have the impulse to slap people because I do I don't do it and I just laugh and I go there's that human part of me so your immortal soul is like just picture your favorite little candy mine's chocolate truffle so here's a chocolate truffle that's love and that's your immortal soul and then you got a wrapper around it to protect it that's a human consciousness, fight, flight, or fear. So when I feel like the urge to slap someone, I just laugh and say, Oh, there's the rapper, because that's not me. That's not me. I am the immortal soul. I am the part of me that stood outside my body. When I was outside my body, I was Leslie Coat. I wasn't, you know, something, I wasn't a mm-hmm. ball of light. I, I was me. And I had all my human memories but i was in my light body i was in my immortal soul
0: so at the what so at what point do you say i okay I, i'm going back did you just kind of slam back into your body did you kind of just go very quietly uh into the body how, how did it go
1: there was the room that we were in when we went in there it was a long room and the far wall was kind of wavy. It looked like a wall. I thought it was a, a waterfall because there were lots of water, you know, fountains and thought. And I thought it was an indoor water fountain. And when we, I decided and we talked about it, I went over there. And when I first kind of began to go through that energy, it was energy. I thought it was a tiny little room and it wasn't. It was actually, again, a bigger room. And Rao was with me at that point. And everything started like slowing down. And I felt like I was being squished. In fact, I always say I felt like I I was being squished into a sausage casing again. And at one point, it was was almost like painful. And the sound, instead of all the beautiful music or singing or voices or whatever I heard, because I could barely hear it, I could, it was like one note, and it was like, hmm, getting lower and lower, and it was almost painful, and I I went like that, and Rao stopped the process, and he said, you don't have to go, and I said, no, I will, and then he leaned forward, and he said, remember, every breath is precious, and that's why I titled my book that way, Remember, Every Breath is Precious, because there are times when I <laughs> have... Here on the planet that I have to catch, go, what was I thinking? You know, I wish I was back home. But I then I remember every breath is precious. Every breath you take is sacred and precious. And that will, you know, get me back into that expanded state because the world squishes you. And it's learning how to balance my humanity with my spirit, it's not to erase my humanity, it's to integrate it, you know? And I think that humanity's evolved enough to where we can be human and spiritual. In fact, there's a great Indian saint, uh, Sri Aurobindo, and around 1900 or so, he had written a a paper on, it was time, humanity had evolved, it was time for the monasteries to open and the temples and for spiritual people to go into the business world and change business and make it spiritual. Well, it's taken a hundred some years, but it's happening, you know? So little that's by a good... little.
0: So, you, yeah. so then you came back into your body and what happened? Did it you was... feel all the pain?
1: <laughs> yes. Well, it was interesting because the first thing I remember was, like, I felt like I hit the ground, you know, it was like everything was squishing, squishing, and then all of a sudden I'm jolted, and everyone uh, later on had told me that they had stopped trying to resuscitate me, told one of the cowboys, go find Bob, she's gone, you know, and they didn't know what to do, there was no respiratory, there was no pulse, they had done CPR for five or six minutes, when we calculated it later, I was, dead about between 12 and 15 minutes Um, and they had given up and then all of a sudden I jolted and sat up now the only thing I remember is I remember seeing a blue sky that was solid blue and there was a couple ladies there and I could see the edge of the hay barn and some trees and then I passed out but apparently I sat up And they, the man was a doctor who was trying to do the CPR, said, everyone's going, Leslie, Leslie, are you okay? And I said, of course I am. And he said, wait, wait, wait. And he said, what's your name? And I said, well, they're calling me Leslie. And then he said, where are you? And I said, Chicago. (laughs) He said, how old are you? And I'm like, "Um, 14. And by that time, Bob came up. And here this older man is walking up and they said, do you know who he is? And I said, is he my father? And they're like, no. And then I began to pass out. So I was in a coma for a couple of weeks um, and then I came out of that and I had a lot of amnesia because I couldn't remember a lot. And my mom was really patient. She came down and she would come to the hospital every day and read to me or talk with me and bring me lots of pictures. And I didn't remember, but I wanted to tell everyone about my experience upstairs because that I could remember minute by minute. You know, it's something so embedded in you when you have those experiences, you don't forget them, you know, completely. And so um, my doctor didn't like that. And he was convincing everyone that I was in a psychotic state and he came in one night. Um, it was really terrifying because it was. I felt so helpless. He sat down on the bed and he started poking me in the shoulder. And he said, if I hear one more story of your hallucination, he said, I'm going to fill you up with drugs. So many drugs, you won't know if it's day or night. And I'm going to put you in a psych unit. And he could have. And I was horrified. By the time he finished that, I had turned away from him and I was sobbing. And there was a nurse in the room when he blew the door open and came in and started yelling at me and then marched out. And she came over and started rubbing my back, you know, and I was crying. And she said something and she said, "Um, I've heard this story before. And I was like, what? And she said, some people talk about this when I, because she was an ICU nurse. Sure. And she said, some people talk about this. And the next night she came back with another nurse and they sat on the bed and we just talked for a few minutes. I was just so terrified, but it, and then I shut down. I didn't talk about it to anybody. Because I was so afraid that it would be used against me and I could be put into another, you know, into a psych ward because my parents believed him, my family believed him, my husband believed him, everyone believed him. And they would have signed any paper to put, and they would have said, yes, take her, put her in there, get her better. They thought it was a a defect,
0: you know. How how long did you stay closeted as a near-death Oh, (laughs)
1: let's see, that was 88 and I worked. I started working at Canyon Ranch in the uh, metaphysical department in, I can't remember, like mid nineties, I'm not good with dates. Sure. And even then I didn't talk about it. I rarely talked about it because I went to a spiritual group that they said, what brought you back to faith? You know, and everyone was sharing their story. So I started <laughs> telling them about the near death experience And the lady asked me to stay. She cut me off, she didn't let me finish and moved to the next person because everyone was supposed to have 10 minutes and five minutes she just said, oh, that's nice. Next person interrupted and I just said, okay, whatever. Then she corners me by the door and says, don't come back here. We're not interested in your filth, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) I just kept getting, I couldn't talk to anybody about it.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
1: And so then um, there's a group called the International Association of Near-Death Experiences. Okay. Sure. Sure. I am nice. came to Tucson and I went to go listen. And I sat there for a year before. That was like 2009. So probably 2010 is when the first time I raised my hand and said, Yes, I had one of those, you know, and shared wow. it just within the group. And I only talked for like, you know, this much of the experience because anytime time I started to talk about it, people would look at each other like, oh, here comes crazy Leslie again, you know, and I just, it's so, it's amazing how people just crush it. And the thing that surprised me was how the people in different, in the Christian religion were the ones. I mean, I talked to Jesus. You'd think they'd be excited about that. Oh, no. Jesus is the only one that rose from the dead. And I'm just like, wait a minute. People are resuscitated all the time after their their death, you know, in surgery. People get trapped under ice for 45 minutes and they, you know, they're resuscitated. But Leslie, Leslie, don't forget,
0: the planet's only 6,000 years old, obviously.
1: Yes. (laughs) I figure we're like... (laughs) You know, that's a good point. <laughs>
0: you know, like and the, the dinosaurs, that's big news. Uh... This is true.
1: <laughs> we, we forget these things. But the thing that's interesting is my analogy is that someone who's a firstborn is like pre-kindergarten and older souls are like masters and PhDs. And the world is about in fourth grade right now, overall. That's how I look at it. But it's hard to talk physics with a second grader. That's one of my favorite sayings. I tell people, "I go, look, don't waste your time. They don't get physics. They're working on subtraction. Leave them alone." You know, it's
0: great. It's a great. It's a great analogy, um, Leslie. I want to thank you so much for telling this story and 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 uh, you know, not only sharing the story but what you've had to go through and the psychological, you know, thing. Rao told you. I mean, they told you on the other side, you're going to be isolated. This is going you're to going be. You're going to be
1: isolated and really told me that I. And you know what's so funny is they go, you know, it's going to take you like even two to three years to get back in your body physically because I was so damaged. Sure. And I show my CAT scans, which I took from the hospital. I don't know how I thought of doing it, but I did. And I show my CAT scans to neurologists and radiologists now today, and they look at it and go, no, you should be dead. I go, ha, tricked you. But mm-hmm. they told me, and you know, I'm just like two or three years. What's two or three years, you know? Yeah, well, then when you're on earth time and you're walking like a snail, two or three years mm-hmm. is a very long time. But Absolutely. they told me it would be a very long time before it would be it would be a burden, you know, for a Did long you- time
0: did you ever think that there would be a time in your life that we would be having these conversations in public like this? No,
1: no, not, not till I met Ian's, No. I just oh, thought for the rest of my life, it's a secret.
0: It's very interesting how these conversations are becoming not more accepted, but also just people are so much more fascinated and interested right. in these stories. Well,
1: Netflix did a series and you know, who also changed my life was Dr. Bruce Grayson
0: I've had Lucia. He, yeah, he's great. I had him on the he,
1: show. I was. I saw an article about him, and I wrote to him, and he wrote me back and sent me his questionnaires. I went through a hundred questionnaires. Well, because I don't know computer stuff and I don't have a printer, he sent them to me in hard copy, and because I can't answer yes or no questions with just yes or no because there's always like, well, I don't know, it's kind of the So I would write a lot and write on the back of it. And I gave him so much more information. So he and I are dear friends. And he gave me a lovely he gave me such a good uh, endorsement for my book. It was just so sweet. He's a great guy. He's yes, done so exactly. much to change it and Pin von Lummel, He's another man that I met that gave me a great endorsement, you know.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a few questions. To ask all my guests. Okay. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life?
1: Oh, good question. I think I think to be at peace. There's a beautiful saying, and I'm going to have to butcher it because I can't remember it word by word. But it talks about, and I, I know you'll know it. It's that peace is not being half, not living in a life without you know, trials and tribulations and tears, but peace is being in that life and having that sense of peace within. And for me, one of the turning points was when I was taught how to live you know, I accept being human, I accept being a mother, I accept being a, a, you know, all the jobs I do, I accept all that, but that's not who I am. And for me, the fulfillment comes from the peacefulness of knowing that um, feeling love, enjoying nature, seeing love in all its forms. And um, that makes me feel very fulfilled. And knowing that there's a group consciousness, like if you meditate, on, if you just still yourself and wish that there was peace, you have to realize there's tens of you know there's millions of people doing it at the same moment and that you are actually connecting and it's nice to know that and begin to feel those connections because like I said there's a lot of really good people in the world that are working towards making the world a better place and being involved in that in, in, a, in a minor level, you can't give everything away. It's like learning when to work and learning when to play, learning when to relax, learning when to go lay in your bed and cry for an hour. you know I mean, it's just keeping things in balance and, and at the very core, always remembering that I am an immortal soul and I'm here to bring hope and I'll do it to the right people.
0: If you had a chance to go back in time and and speak to your younger self, what advice would you give her?
1: Oh, so much unhappiness and so much um, self-judgment. I would tell her that she's going to be okay and that, you know, I'm happier now than I've ever been, you know, because I don't have anything in my life. I don't have anyone in my life, in my inner journey life. You know, uh, we have intimate love, which is for family, friends and relationships. And then we have unconditional love. And when I learned that unconditional love doesn't include the word vulnerability, I can unconditionally love anyone. But if you're gonna be close to me, you have to be my peer in integrity and openness and, and gentleness, you know? And it's just kind of learning to find your tribe. And I would say that one day you're not going to feel so alone. You are going to find a lot of people who are just as curious and quirky and mm. crazy as yourself. And you will have a lot of fun.
0: How do you define God?
1: It's, it's immeasurable. It's indescribable. It's it's the intensity of love. It's such a an acceptance. And um, to me, God is only love. There's no judgment, there's no hatred, there's no vindictiveness, like in a lot of different religions. God is the purest sense of feeling adoration and feeling how to feel adoration, I mean, true adoration and feeling adored in, in return. It's the highest level of love and total acceptance.
0: And what is the ultimate purpose of life?
1: To grow, to learn and to grow. I'm gonna learn and grow until I die. I'm never gonna sit down. You know, I'm retired, but start a new career. I'm taking classes and making art again because I had a psych degree and I had mm-hmm. an art degree when I graduated, so I'm going back to my art. And the purpose of life is to help others. I think the single thing that makes us happiest is when we can help someone, just even an inch, and you can see them be able to do it themselves and take care of themselves. And they don't have to keep coming back, you know, for an adjustment. I think the the core is, is helping others and installing hope for others.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
0: And where can people find out more about you and your book?
1: Oh, um, on my webpage. I have a webpage. It's, um, duh, I forgot my <laughs> name. Uh, Leslie Joan Lupo. Leslie, L E S L E Y Joan Lupo.com. And my book is on there. And It's called Every Breath is Precious. And I'm actually on the cover of the book. That's me with the horses.
0: Very nice. And do you have any parting messages for the audience?
1: Thank you all for listening. Thank you for being interested. And um, keep keep asking questions. Keep learning. Keep growing. And don't give up. Don't, don't, don't ever give up.
0: Leslie, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your story with all of us. I appreciate you. you. I want to thank Leslie so much for coming on the show and sharing her story with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 296. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey.